Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of PAS FML, the only podcast run by an actual, real-life, current PA student. That's me. I'm your host, Pia K, and on today's episode, I am going to be talking all about my current rotation, which is the third rotation that I've been on, and it is in urgent care slash kind of primary care. Um, and the nice thing about urgent care is that turns out, despite its name of urgent, uh, it's actually a little more chill than my previous two rotations. So my first rotation was in the ED and my second rotation was on a hospitalist team doing inpatient medicine in a big hospital. Um, so if you haven't checked those out yet, uh, please go and do so because I had a ton, a ton of information um, to share. But uh, again, turns out urgent care, not as complicated. So um, I actually uh, have some time on this episode to get into some of the clinical medicine and get in some sweet, sweet panic studying for us. Uh, and I'm really glad that I've got some time to do some panic studying because I uh, haven't done much studying like at all. And the scary thing is that next week, my classmates and I are all heading back to campus for the first time since we left for cl clinical rotations months ago now. Um, and literally the first day back, we are taking a practice boards exam. Um, it's called the pack rat and I don't know how to spell it. Uh, I just know that I'm taking it and it's about a three and a half hour test and supposedly somewhere in the world there's some sort of conversion score where you can figure out if you would actually pass the real boards exam. Um, so that's going on. And like I said, I've not studied. So let's do some panic studying. And I thought this would be a good time to talk about some of the really uh, common things that I saw in the more on the primary care side of this clinical rotation that I've been on. So let's get going. Okay, so I am actually a huge nerd, but I am a, a really big fan of analogies and visualizations. So if you listen to my earlier podcast, I talked, um, well, I compared the ED to being playing like dominoes, meaning you get your patient and you have to set them up for something. Either you do a treatment for them to see how it turns out or you grab uh, some labs or imaging. But you basically, with each patient that you get, you've got these little dominoes that you set up and you just kind of gently nudge them forward and, you know, let the lab do its work or let the imaging folks do their work or let the IV fluid do its work and see what happens. Um, so you just kind of set these dominoes up and you just give them a little plink and they go one by one down the line. And at the end of the game, you've either, either got a treatment plan or you fixed your patient. So that's my dominoes analogy for how the ED functions. And then on my second rotation, which was uh, urgent care, or not urgent care, um, hospital medicine, inpatient hospital medicine, that was less fun. It wasn't, it didn't feel like a game at all. It actually felt like play, no, not playing. It actually felt like trying to spin a whole bunch of plates 
on like those long, tall rod things. And basically your whole day was spent just trying not to drop all the various plates that your various patients were making you carry. And a lot of those plates... Maybe we caused some of the extra plates, meaning the patient came in for kidney problems and so you gave them a whole bunch of fluids, but now all of a sudden you come in the next day and damn it, now they're drowning, now you're drowning their lungs in the fluids that you gave them to fix their AKI. Um, so sometimes we cause the spinning plates and other times you come in and all of a sudden now the patient has a bump troponin. Well, like what the hell happened there? So now you're, now you're following serial troponin. So I did, I felt like in the hospital, it was just so precarious that I was constantly having to monitor vitals and lab values and just anything in general with my patients because it felt like I was spinning plates for every single patient. And every single patient I felt like had like nine or 10 plates going on at one time. And at any point, any one of them could topple over and crash and bust all over my feet and I would be a bad provider. Um, so that was, that, that was the beauty of internal medicine, not to scare anybody who's ever, who's not yet done their clinical rotation. So for what it's worth, go check out my, uh, episode on that. If you care to have some sort of idea about what's coming at you. Um, so that brings me to my third one, which is again, the urgent care. And the one that I'm at actually does urgent care and like kind of primary care too, actually. Um, just a quick note on my, the personal one that I'm at. It is super small. They only ever have one provider on, whether it's the PA and that's the main person that I'm following. Uh, they have a handful of MDs and a DO and like two FN, F family nurse practitioners, FNPs. Um, so and, and there's only ever one of them on at a time. We only have two exam rooms and we don't even have any MAs. So I have for six weeks now, or almost six weeks, taken every single blood pressure, done every temperature, done all the O2 and the heart rates. Uh, and that's been great because I can actually take somebody's blood pressure now, which I... <laughs> Despite the fact that my program really did try its best to teach to teach me how to do a manual blood pressure, uh, I was pretty much just faking it until I made it. Um, so maybe that's maybe that's a success story that I can talk about now. I've I actually know how to take somebody's blood pressure manually, and I was totally faking it. Probably the first week that I was here, I mean, I was guessing. I mean, don't get me wrong; it's not like I was. Uh, just making up random numbers. But I was like, but yeah, you know, yeah, that, maybe that was it, you know, give or take two or four points kind of thing. Um, but uh, anyway, I'm really good at it now. So uh, thank you for not having any MAs because now I'm a better clinician because of that. So um, so that's my clinic. And also the one last thing I'll say about my clinic is that it's Neat because we are located in this super tropical, lush climate where people spend all the time in the water. And because of that, I have actually seen some of the things that I only read about, like in the AT&T module, for instance, where I was like, I'm never going to see that thing like yeah an ear growth uh, uh in like in the ear canal caused by wind from surfers yeah okay you know out out my brain not not putting it in my brain um and then turns out i get here and it's actually super common 
And like people know that they have it and they're like, oh, yeah, that's my exostosis. And I'm like, oh, OK. And I even had one guy who had it like drilled out because if you recall, maybe you will, maybe you won't. But it's a bone growth. So it's not like it goes down. But exostosis is like a bone growth. And it's basically your body trying to p- protect your ear canal. Uh, from all the wind and water and cold water specifically. Um, So your body gets smart and tries to lay down more bone inside your ear so that you don't cause it harm. Um, So that's been neat because I've seen some tropical things like that. So um, I uh, actually will spend some time getting into a handful of those tropical things at the end of this. But I really, really wanted to talk about some of the main, like three, three or four main things that I've seen while I've, I've been on rotation here. Um, but we're going to get to sweet, sweet panic studying in a minute. Um, I think I really only have one clinical pearl to give about the urgent care. Um, I mean, I, I could say that, like, for instance, I talked to some of my classmates and some of them have already done like half of their digital rectal exams and pelvic exams. And it was because they did urgent care. Um, well, that wasn't me, but I did more of my DREs in my ED experience. Um, so, you know, everybody experience is obviously going to be a little bit different here. Um, but uh, again, for the most part, my patients, at least, have come through the door, and I can pretty much put them in one of two categories. Either they are true, legitimate, urgent care patients, meaning they're basically just coming in for like an acute viral issue or bacterial issue, right? Like a URI, essentially. Uh, this is the time of year that every, that everything's going around. People either have their flu shots or they don't. Um, so they're either coming in with the flu or they're coming in with a URI or some strep throat kind of goodness. Um So these people are either true urgent care people or, and I didn't know that this was a second option until I was just really feeling overwhelmed with one particular patient who came in one day and my preceptor, who is a PA, a very wise PA, wisely told me, oh, so you're feeling overwhelmed with the seven things that this chronically ill patient brought in for you to deal with today? Yes, of course you are. That's because they are better served by an internal medicine provider. Um, and, and, then, and, and that just clicked for me. It, it made me feel less of a failure <laughs> because I was really feeling totally inadequate and that I wasn't helping this patient at all because they had seven problems that they were coming in with, long-standing problems and w- vague symptoms going on. I'm like, yeah, I... I wish I could tell you why your eye got puffy after you took a bath yesterday. I, I'm not quite sure what to tell you about that. I mean, I, I suppose I could have just said you're a hypochondriac, but um, that's, that's not helpful. Uh, so anyway, uh, the difference between a true urgent care patient and then these patients, again, who are probably more are better served through legitimate internal medicine providers because they only come in when they've got five things on a list because they don't want to, quote, waste the visit. Literally, I had somebody tell me that. Um, and and we could talk all day. And for in fact, I could probably talk for two days um, on the structure of our healthcare system such that people either don't have access to a primary, a legitimate, like, internal medicine primary care for care provider. Um, but uh, again, that's a topic for another day. Um, so the reality is, is that sometimes these people come in and they are just 
time consuming because of the either amount of concerns that they have or the complexity of concerns that they have. And I wish I could give a better pearl on how to best deal with that kind of presentation, but I myself don't have a good way to deal with it. My preceptor is really nice in that he's never told me that I need to speed up on my on seeing the patients and he's never gotten upset with me for spending 55 minutes digging through somebody's intense complex history so I've been lucky but I know that that's not a thing in the real world um, maybe he's letting me make these mistakes now um, because I'm kind of coming to the conclusion that I, I know that I can't do that with every patient and I actually just read an article this morning that was delivered to my Medscape inbox or my inbox by Medscape. And it said something along the lines of it's best to validate that these people come in with literally, literally a list of issues. And if you can try to cut them off in the past and say, well, let's talk, let's give me a brief overview about the things that are concerning you. I'm going to try my absolute best to get to all of them today, but just in case we don't, do you have time to come back and see me next week or in a couple of days? When when can I when can I get you back in here to split this up? You know, that way so that you're validating the patient and you're not interrupting them or kind of hand-waving off some of these concerns of theirs because, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes vague symptoms are cause for concern. And so just because it's vague doesn't mean that you don't talk about it. So um, I need to do a better job of trying to incorporate some of those uh, recommendations into dealing with some of these more long-winded or complex patients. Um, but uh, for now, I've just been spending an hour with these guys kind of shrugging my shoulders. And sometimes we draw labs and sometimes I refer them back to the neurologist or to their GI person. Or actually, a lot of times we say, well, why don't we wait on it for a minute and see what happens in another two, three days or even a week. So um, anyway, uh, that's really the only like behind the scenes pearl that I can give you. Otherwise, it's primary care medicine and um, the little um, uh, like the red bound book, the mini super mini primary care book has been super helpful. Um, it fits in your pocket and it's like got a hard cover and it's red and they change it every few years when they update it. So it's now it's red. Uh, it used to be like, I don't know, orange or something like that. Um, and that's been fantastic. And I've found a ton of my information that I've needed to in there. Plus pro tip, because it's hard bound, uh, you can write on it. So that was really helpful as well. Uh, so those are my, those are my only two tips. Uh, get that book. I'm going to have to look up the name for you. And, um, sometimes you're, urgent care patients are actually going to be internal medicine patients, but you have to talk to them anyway. Uh, see if you can cut, can cut them off at the pass and try to schedule another um, uh, appointment with them in a week or two. Um, all right. So that's my behind the care of urgent care stuff. Let's get into some sweet, sweet panic studying. Okay. Real quick before we do the sweet, sweet panic studying. Uh, the name of the little book that I was just talking about is put out by the people who go by Pocket Notebook, and it's called Pocket Primary Care. Uh, this one is the second edition, and it's done by the Massachusetts General Hospital people. Uh, so you can get it on Amazon, and it's amazing. And 
I looked at the reviews yesterday and apparently people hated it when it first came out because they said that the pages were like didn't fit in the spiral ring binder or whatever, but mine's perfect. Um, so it's awesome. Uh, okay, let's do some studying. So just to set the stage, here are the top 10 most common things that came through my urgent care slash needing primary care help with. And three of them are what we're going to panic study with. So here we go. Number one most complaint was a cough. And it's just that time of the year. It's what, like late November, early December, people are getting sick. People are coming in with coughs. And out of all the people who came in with their various lengths of cough, literally any time from this cough started yesterday to I've had this cough for two weeks, um, I only had one patient who had confirmed pneumonia. Uh, there were a handful of people who they had had symptoms for long enough um, and the cough was dry enough and it came on suddenly enough that we called it a bronchitis. But pretty much everybody else just had a URI going on. Um, so anyway, a couple of mini pearls there about cough. So number one, complaint, cough. Number two, hypertension. Number three, hyperlipidemia. And uh, those are actually two of the three things that we're going to get a little bit weedsy with here in just a moment. Number four, low back pain. Oh God, this is such a hard diagnosis. And I talked a lot about it in my emergency department rotation because a ton of people came in for it in the ED as well. Um, so take a listen there. I had some other pearls to go through. Uh, number five, UTI. So cystitis, people having burning, basically a whole bunch of women, it burned when they peed. Um, did a whole bunch of UA uh, dipsticks for these gals. Um, basically gave them either Cipro or Bactrim. Um, and as well as told them to either pick up some Azo, A-Z-O, um, or actually wrote them a prescription for pyridium, which is just per prescription strength, azo. Uh, all right, UTI. Uh, after that, pharyngitis. Uh, so people coming in with sore throats. And we did a handful of, um, not, yeah, a, hand, a handful of rapid strep tests. And only a few of them came back um, positive. But uh, pretty much that's going to be your Centaur criteria. Um, so we'll get to that in a quick bit as well. Um, actually had a lot of people come in with anxiety issues, which I definitely had a podcast all about that. Um, so take care of yourself. I hope you're doing well. We love you, all of you. Um, and then let's see, uh, cellulitis and rash, random rashes. Uh, again, I'm in a tropical climate here. People wearing a ton of bathing suits and getting a whole bunch of rashes all up in, uh, their lady and man bit parts. Um, fun. Uh, and then rounding out the list, the uh, at the number 10 spot was diabetes type 2. So the three things we're going to go in depth here are hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and diabetes type 2. Because essentially these people would come in and I would 
take a blood pressure reading, for instance, and I would put write it on the page. And then I would, in my head, I would panic because I was like, oh my God, does this qualify for hypertension? Because I had completely forgotten how to formally diagnose these things. Um, so that's primarily what I want to spend time talking about right now. How do you formally diagnose hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes type 2, and then we'll talk about the Centaur criteria because I can never frigging remember that dumb criteria until somebody gave me a quick quick mnemonic for it. So I'm going to share that with you. Um, and then I also want to talk about two uh, surfer things that I see a lot of out here. So um, let's see. Let's start with hypertension. Question number one, how do you officially diagnose hypertension? Somebody comes in and what? You take a blood pressure and they're 148 over 84. Great. Do they have hypertension? Uh, well, turns out it depends because the formal diagnosis for hypertension is that you need two, at least two, elevated blood pressure readings that are spaced at least one week apart. So if this is the first time you've seen that person come through the door and they're elevated, you can't, you can't say anything. That's great. That is a one-time elevated reading of a blood pressure. So you need at least two elevated blood pressure readings that are spaced at least one week apart. And the patient has to have no other identifiable causes, meaning they didn't just come back from the gym or didn't just run to the clinic or they didn't have 18 cups of coffee 12 seconds ago. Um, so that's the formal diagnosis. And then pro tip, if the systolic versus diastolic, if those end up in two different categories, and we're going to go into those categories right now, but if those two readings are in two different categories, use the higher one. Okay, so how do we classify hypertension? Well, what's normal? What's a normal blood pressure? And keep in mind that there were actually some new updates to how they classified hypertension, I believe just last summer is also like May of 2017. Um, so that's what everybody in clinical practice is using. And I actually am not entirely sure if the boards for 2019 are going to be using these new uh, classifications or not. I actually have an email out to one of my professors asking that specific question. So if I get some info, I will update us. But um, here's the Normal normal blood pressure is systolic of less than less than 120 and diastolic less than 80. And uh, I say less than because the second you get to 120 or the second you get to 80, officially, you have to call it not normal blood pressure. So this is less than 120, less than 180. Uh, next step is the elevated blood pressure. And so this one is the one that starts at systolic 120 or diastolic, excuse me, only the systolic. So systolic, the second you hit 120, you're at least into elevated blood pressure. And then wouldn't you know it, you actually still need to have diastolic less than 80 to be considered elevated. Because the second you go, oh, the second you hit 80 on your diastolic officially, now you're in stage one. So that's a little bit of a discrepancy there, a little kind of a weird thing. So I'm going to say it again. The second you hit 120 on systolic, 
you can call that patient elevated. Their diastolic still needs to be under 80, though, because if that if their systolic is, say, 124 and their diastolic is 82, officially because the diastolic is over 80, now you have to call them stage one. So just to keep right clear as mud, right? Um, all right. So stage one then is diastolic starting at 80, or you can actually get there if your systolic is over 130. Uh, and then stage two starts at systolic of 140 or, or diastolic at 90. Now, I know I just said a whole bunch of things and you're not looking at any of the words and that's hard. So here, basically, here's what it is. Recap. Normal is under 120 systolic or under 80 diastolic. And then from there, here's the numbers you need to know. Systolic is 120s, 130, 140. Those are your benchmarks. Under 120 is normal. The second you hit systolic 120, you're at elevated. The second you hit systolic at 130, you're stage one. The second you hit systolic at 140, you're stage two. So your systolic numbers, under 120, 120, 130, 140, done. And there's four stages, so keep that in mind. Uh, a little bit different for the diastolic there. Um, the normal and elevated both need to be under 80, but you only have to remember two numbers for diastolic, 80 and 90. So under 80, you're either normal or elevated. Uh, the second you hit 80, diastolic, now you're at stage one. The second you hit 90 diastolic, now you're at stage two. So let's put that to a test. Let's say a patient comes in 154 over 92. What are they? 154 over 92. Are they normal, elevated, stage one, or stage two? Yay, they're stage two, right? That was super easy. Okay, here's a harder one. Somebody comes in 126 over 82. 126 over 82. What are they? Because of the diastolic over 80, you have to call them stage one. So a little tricky there because officially you go, oh, systolic is 126. That should only be elevated. But it was hard and I was a jerk because the diastolic was officially over 80. So at 82, now they're at stage one. Okay, let's move on. Um, just to throw a real quick reminder in here that I know I said that stage two is at 140 systolic and diastolic at 90. Okay, well, what happens if somebody gets like way higher than that? Okay, so the second we hit 140 over 90, officially we're stage two. But uh, what if we're way, way, way high? And recall that there are like emergencies that we can get to if our blood pressure gets too high. Specifically, there's two that we need to remember. There's one thing called hypertension, hypertensive urgency. And then there's one that's actually called hypertensive, hypertensive crisis or emergency. So they didn't give us any help with trying to make those words sound any different. But officially, there's two different um, kind of urgent things that can go on with our blood pressure here. And the only difference is whether or not the patient is 
having symptoms. So in hypertension, hypertensive, how many times am I going to do that? Good Lord. Um, in hypertensive urgency, the numbers to keep in your head are systolic at or greater than 180 or diastolic at or greater than 110. So 180 over 110 is when we start to get really nervous about people and we're going to put them in one or two categories. We're either going to call them hypertensive urgency or hypertensive emergency. And again, the only difference is how what is the patient feeling? So in hypertensive urgency, we've got this incre increased blood pressure of at least 180 over 1 or 110 for diastolic, but the patient feels fine. They've got no symptoms. And by that, I mean they have like no apparent end organ dam damage. They're just sitting in the office. They're sitting in the ED. And you're like, oh, my God, you're at, sitting at 195. Are you okay? And they're like, yeah, feel fine. Don't have a headache. I don't have any chest pain. I'm good. Um, so that's hypertensive urgency. Um, now, what happens if the patient says, oh, yeah, I've got chest pain, I've got a headache, or something even worse? They are stroking out, or they're encephalopathic, or let's see what else is on here. Um, other signs of end organ damage. So we're basically looking for blood pressure of greater than 180 over 110, plus some symptoms and signs of end organ damage. And buzzwords for end organ damage include encephalopathy, nephropathy, aortic dissection, pulmonary edema, and then unstable angina or a flat out like MI or stroke. So some pretty serious things that are going on right there. Um, and that's why we call that hypertensive emergency. So send those people to ED. I'm not going to talk about treatment here because I'm sure I'll probably do that in a different podcast, but um, that's the difference for those people. Oh, um, I guess there's a secret category. <laughs> Sorry, guys. There's a secret category called malignant hypertension. And I don't actually know if the new teachings make a distinction of this. I saw this written in some places and other places didn't even mention it, but malignant hypertension is the presence of papilledema. So you need to go see that um, uh, on the eye exam. So this is why we look at eye exams, apparently. Apparently, it's probably only done on the boards because I never did that in the ED. But um, who knows? Maybe that was just me. Um, all right. So quick sidebar there. So now that we've diagnosed somebody with hypertension or elevated, right, because that's um, like the that's the second category, normal, elevated, stage one or stage two. Do you remember what the numbers were? Under 120, 120, 130, 140 for systolic, and then you only needed two numbers for diastolic, 80 or 90. Um, so, all right, great. So I've diagnosed elevated or actual hypertension. Now what do I do? So what are we telling these people to do? Well, guess what? Absolutely, everybody gets lifestyle changes. What do I mean by that? Uh, weight loss specifically weight loss. And also one of the best ways to do that is with this thing called the DASH diet. Um, I'm totally, I'm going to um, embarrass myself by admitting that I had no idea what DASH stood for. So I looked it up guys and let me save you the embarrassment of me not knowing, having, not having known what it was. Oh my God. And I didn't even write it down and I've totally forgotten it. Oh my gosh. Hold on. And I found it. 
really wish I had the editing ability to insert the Jeopardy song right there. Would have been perfect, but I'm not that fancy. Uh, all right, so DASH Diet stands for Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension. So no wonder why we tell everybody with formally diagnosed hypertension to go on the DASH diet, because it was literally designed for them. Uh, so there you go. Uh, Pearl. Uh, put, put your people on the DASH diet. Tell them to decrease sodium. Tell them to reduce their alcohol intake. I mean, all the fun things. No more fun anymore. No more sodium. No more alcohol. And they need to start exercising. Uh, specifically, if it's moderate intensity, meaning you shouldn't be able to like talk through. This is how my preceptor talked about it. He said you shouldn't be able to talk through it um, without some significant panting and breaks. Um, so moderate intensity exercise five times a week by 30 minutes uh, and biking and like swimming and rowing were some of his favorite things to tell these people because I guess everybody's got knee problems. Um, so nobody likes running. Um when you've got knee problems. Um, and then if you, instead of doing moderate intensity activity, if you actually did vigorous intensity, you only have to do it three times a week. Uh, so I'm looking at you CrossFitters three times a week. Apparently all you really need to be doing if you've got hypertension. Um, so score one for you. Okay. So everybody gets lifestyle changes. What about the second category? What happens if somebody's got elevated? What specifically do they need to do? Turns out, lifestyle only. And then they have to come back and see you in three to six months to see if their lifestyle only uh, interventions have helped. Okay, next. Stage one. Stage one, to remind us all, starts at 130 or diastolic at 80. And turns out these people may not actually need medication. And this is tricky, so stay with me on this one. So your patient is at 135 over 85, right? Nice round numbers, over 130 over 80. Do they need medication? Well, what we need to do is calculate the ASCVD risk for them. And this is the atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk. And this little risk calculator, it helps predict the 10-year risk of having an atherosclerotic cardiovascular event. And if you do, if you do the calculation for the ASCVD, and you don't have to do it in your head, there's calculators all over the interwebs. Um, most people know MD-Calc. So if their ASCVD risk is greater than 10%, then you can start the medication. So they may not need the meds, but if their ASCVD is greater than 10%, then it's okay to start the medicine. And basically what we're trying to avoid here, right? So, I mean, I keep using this word, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Like what, what, specific, what specific event do I, like, what events am I talking about? right? These are just jargon um, for your patients. Specifically, we are trying to avoid a first non-fatal heart attack. So just having a heart attack, but you survived it, but it was still a heart attack. So that's not good. We're trying to prevent a non-fatal non -fatal MI. We're trying to prevent the onset of coronary heart disease. And we're trying to prevent either a fatal or a non-fatal stroke. I don't think that's going to be on the boards, but just 
it helps me figure out how to process this kind of information because it's just gobbledygook until I look it up because that's how my brain works. Uh, I actually need to know how the thing works before I can even have a chance at remembering it. So the ASCVD risk, if it's greater than 10% in your stage one hypertension people, they may not mean they or they then you can start the medication if it's over than 10%. Um, and then just for our own edification, the components of this ASCVD calculator include things like patients' uh, race, their sex, their age, their total cholesterol, and their HDL. Uh, so we're going to get that get to that in just a minute. Um, their systolic blood pressure, whether or not they're already on a hypertension medication, whether or not they're diabetes, and whether or not they smoke. So those are just the components of the ASCVD risk calculator, again, just so that we know what we're talking about. Um, all right, so still on stage one, so they're over 130 or 80, we're going to calculate the ASCVD risk. If it's greater than 10%, start some medication. Now, there is an immediate don't don't pass go. What is it? Don't pass go. Go directly to jail. Medic. Go go directly to medication jail. And that is if these patients have type two diabetes, chronic kidney disease, or they already have known cardiovascular disease. So like they've already had an MI. Maybe they've already had a stroke. So if you're in stage one hypertension, but you are you have one of those three things, don't pass go. Go straight to medication jail. You need to start meds right away. And then you need to check these people back in one month. Um, if at one month they're still not at goal, and we'll get to hear what goal is in a minute, but if their hypertension is still uncontrolled in a month, you either increase the dose or you can even add a second medication. Um, that's probably getting a little weedsy here, but eh, that's how I do things sometimes. Um, essentially, you're going to follow these people every month until you get down to goal. Uh, all right, so that was stage one hypertension. Stage two hypertension, right? What are our numbers? Under, under 120, 120, 130, 140. So these are your 140s and 90s or above. Um, and the way that I think of, the way that I remember this is stage two hypertension, you automatically get on two medications. So stage two, automatically start two different classes of hypertension medicines, and then they actually have the same recheck schedule. So do it monthly until you meet their goal. Now, what's goal? Turns out, as a ton of things in medicine, we actually have new goals for hypertension. Absolutely everybody, we absolutely everybody gets under 130 over 80. That's for everyone. And that's different because they used to break it up ba based on patients' comorbidities, uh, but this was a new update. So everybody wants to get gold, gold blood pressure under 130 over 80, doesn't matter on their comorbidities. Um, and this was based on this study called the SPRINT study, which I don't normally look up stuff, but uh, I got... I got this huge handout from this cardiologist in my um, hospital medicine rotation, and I read the whole damn thing, and it was actually pretty interesting. So this study found that there were lower rates of both fatal and non-fatal stroke and heart attacks um, that happened when people's systolic blood pressure were between 120 and 124, which is like super tight control of blood pressure. I mean, super, super tight. Um, so 120 to 124 is actually ideal, but uh, the formal guidelines just say 
just get yourself below 130 over 80 and we'll be happy with that. Um, so new goal, 130 over 80. Uh, all right. So that is who are we start? Who are we starting medications in? Next question. What kind of medications should you start? Um, so somebody's got hypertension. What kind of meds are you going to start? And this also gets, this is also clear as mud and there's even an algorithm and, um, it was super complicated when my professors showed it to us um, in class, but I think I've kind of broken it down. So let me let me try to simplify this as best I can. So you've got three main options for first line medications for hypertension. You've got your hydrochlorothiazides, your calcium channel blockers, and your ACEs slash ARBs. Um, so I put ACEs and ARBs in one category because essentially they're the same thing, except the way we were taught was that ARBs carry less of the um, cough. Uh, so really, we should just be using those. All right. So three main options. Um, and that is for your non-black patients. So your non-black patients, hydrochlorothiazide, calcium channel blockers, ACEs and ARBs. And they they split that up because in our African-American populations, um, you actually only have two choices because they found that the ACEs and the ARBs are actually not as effective for the African-American folks. Um, so African-American folks start that try either a thiazide or the calcium channel block for them. So that's kind of a blanket statement there, right? You've got those three choices and you can pick one based on essentially a patient patient race. Um, and then they get a little bit pickier because in order to help you figure out, well, which, okay, so which one of those two or three should I start? Essentially, the next thing is look at the patient's comorbidities. So if the patient has kidney, like chronic kidney disease or CHF or diabetes, you might, you might want to protect their kidneys a little bit better for them. Well, what of those three medications that I just said is actually um, like kidney and heart protective? It's the ACEs and ARBs. So that's kind of how, that's how you, that's essentially how you use what are my patients' other comorbidities um, to direct which of those few medications you're going to use. Um, so chronic kidney disease, CHF or diabetes, try the ACE or the ARB. Uh, what are the side effects? We've got the classic dry bradykinin cough, and I call it the bradykinin cough because I feel like any any test that I've ever sat, formally sat through has always asked, like, hmm, what is the cause of the dry cough that's associated with lisinopril? Uh, so buzzword bradykinin. Um, so that's the main, that's the main side effect that you can get with ACEs, um, and a little bit less with ARBs. Um, but the other buzzword, scary word for ACEs and ARBs is angioedema. Um, and then also put in your brains that ACEs and ARBs are not for pregnant or breastfeeding ladies. So there's your ACEs and ARBs. Okay. Next comorbidity, comorbidity. What if somebody's got heart troubles like AFib? Well, What's an, what's a medication that we can use for like rate and rate and rhythm control? Calcium channel blockers. Um, specifically, most people reach for the amlodipine, 
Um, and that one carries with it a pretty standard side effect, super classic for lower, um, lower extremity edema. So amlodipine, one of your calcium channel blockers, super known side effect of lower extremity edema. Um, and then remember also that calcium channel blocker is something that we can use in our African-American patients. Uh, next up, what about um, if somebody's got osteoporosis, kidney stones, or again, in our African-American population, uh, we can try the thiazides. So hydrochlorothiazide would be good for people, um, again, osteoporosis, kidney stones, or our African-American folks. Um, what are the side effects of, of thiazides? Super common one is hypokalemia. So low potassium hypokalemia goes with thiazides. Um, and then just to make it annoying, you actually can get hyperglycemia. So again, we're talking about thiazides here, super common hypokalemia, which I always remember that for whatever weird reason, but I never remember that it can increase, um, glucose. So what's a patient population that you might not want to use thiazides in? If we're worried about glucose in people, obviously I'm talking about your type 2 diabetics. So maybe don't use it for your type 2 diabetics. Uh, along that same vein, thiazides also increase uric acid. So what, what disease am I talking about when I'm saying, ooh, be worried about your uric acid people? Gout patients. So thiazides may not be that great for type 2 diabetics and for your gout patients. And also another pearl, another buzzword, we don't use these in kidneys disease. Uh, there's actually another um, second line medication that we'd use in kidney disease. And we're going to get to that in a quick bit. Uh, actually, like right now. So those were our first line medications, hydrochlorothiazides, calcium channel blockers, ACEs and ARBs. Those are your three choices. Um, if you are um, treating an African-American patient, stick with either the calcium channel blocker or the hydrochlorothiazide. All right, next second line of medications. What if your patient has BPH? Well, that's your good old alpha blockers or prazosin. Prazosin? I don't know. I should have looked that one up. Sorry, guys. Um, so prazosin, good for your BPH people. Um, and then... Let's see. What about, oh, um, somebody else with other heart issues? I know we already kind of talked about if they've got AFib, you can use a calcium channel blocker. Um, but another option for AFib or um, coronary artery, artery disease in general is beta blockers. Again, not second line, right? Beta blockers, not second line. Put that in your brain. Um, but certainly something that you consider, again, for, a, for AFib or coronary artery disease. Um, and now we finally got to got to the um, chronic kidney disease people. Um, what's the medication that we want to use? We definitely want to avoid the thiazides, but medication of choice for chronic kidney disease people, um, specifically if their creatinine clearance is less than 30, uh, you want to use a loop diuretic. So basically your Lasix, i.e. furosemide, or bumetin. Bumetanide. That's another one that I kind of hear every now and then, but most commonly everybody thinks of Lasix. So use your Lasix in your chronic, kid chronic kidney disease people. And I'm pretty sure you can even use it in AKI. I'm pretty sure to, I use that um, for a handful of folks when they were in the hospital. Um, okay. So that's medicines for hypertension. And finishing up the hypertension talk just now, I've got a bonus question for you. What age do we start screening annually 
for blood pressure. What age do we start screening annually for blood pressure? And maybe this is a terrible question, but I wanted to put it in here because it blew my mind. But then I remember like, oh, yeah, I guess I kind of remember learning about that. Officially, according to the 2017 AAP guidelines, age three, little itty bitty toddlers, age three, were starting the screen annually for blood pressure. Now, I saw it written in other places that we don't need to start screening for blood pressure until age 20. Um, So actually, that was kind of a terrible question. But I do remember in our pediatrics that it was said that you start screening at age three. Maybe that's only if there's um, like a family history of it or I don't know, maybe if they're overweight already by age three. Um, but anyway, according like um, the one of the um, one of the resources that I said found said age three. Um, so, uh, OK, that's going to wrap up hypertension. Next up, lipid disorders. Man, I I hope you guys like the little instrumental musical interludes that I have the ability to put in here. Uh, I find them highly amusing, and I hope you guys do too. So sorry, but I'm gonna I'm gonna keep using them because I think they're really, really, really funny. Um, anyway, uh, I'm actually gonna stop here because this is getting a little out of control, and I haven't even gotten into uh, the, for two out of the three things that I really wanted to cover. Um, and that's because they're really big topics. They're a huge part of primary medicine, which is why I saw them all the time. People, they're just so, so, so prevalent. So I'm going to stop here at hypertension. And before I do, I want to make a point of clarification that I, um, about beta blockers. I said incorrectly a couple times, that they were um, not second line. That's totally false. That's the only thing that they are. Beta blockers are only second line for hypertension. So sorry about that. I'll say it again. Beta blockers are only considered second line for hypertension. They're a terrible, by and large, hypertension medication. And we need to use them as a second line medicine only when People are coming in with other heart arrhythmias like an AFib, for instance. So point of clarification on that one. So that'll do it for this episode. We've done a lot of hard work. Hypertension is a bear. And I actually should have gotten into some of the side effect of the medications a little bit more. Um, So it's crazy to think that there's actually more that we could have covered on hypertension. But I think that was a pretty good smattering. And we've done a good job. So let's call it a day. I will try to bring us, I'll actually try to split the hyperlipidemia and type 2 diabetes probably into their own little mini episodes so that they're a little bit easier to break apart and uh, consume. Um, so hope, I'll hope to try to get those out pretty quickly, mainly because I would like to go over that before I sit for my boards next week. Um, but I also want to make sure that I am covering urgent care for us and talk about some of the more H-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-E-
Um, again, because everybody hates the centaur criteria, but I know it now. And so I'm going to share it with you. And that's going to be my teaser to get you to check in next time. So uh, thanks for sticking around with me this time. And uh, see you on the next episode.